Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. What evidence do we have that the New Testament documents are historically reliable, that they're actually telling us the truth about what happened? We're not asking the question, are they inerrant today? That's another question. But do they tell us really what happened in the first century, particularly what happened to Jesus? Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then Christianity's true. And to have us work through that question is Dr. Ben Shaw. Ben has his PhD in theology from Liberty University, and for the past several years, he's been working with the great Dr. Gary Habermas. And we happen to be right now at the Steadfast National Conference on Christian Apologetics for Southern Evangelical Seminary. And Ben, you were going to be here anyway, but Gary... uh, Gary got sick and you filled in for him, yeah. which, which goes to show you how well you know his stuff. <laughs> yeah, it goes to show, too, how important it is to train up the next generation. That's right. That's a very important part. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he called me less than 24 hours before the event was going to start. And he's like, hey, Ben, if I don't go tomorrow, are you going to go? And I'm like, that's a weird question to ask. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go. But why are you asking that? He goes, because I'm feeling sick and I need you to fill in for me. And so he told me we were going to be talking about the timeline argument, and then I show up, and that's not the topic we were supposed to discuss. So we had uh, we had to pull some audibles, but it was good. It was a good session. Um, yeah, I was we in. Able, it was good. We were Very able good. to share a lot. So uh, yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. So. Now uh, you also, well, first of all, just so our viewers and listeners understand, in 2024 you're going to come out with a book that has 13 arguments for the reliability of Scripture. Is yes, that right? Or yes. the New 13, Testament? 13 arguments for the reliability of the New Testament. Okay. And it's designed uh, to be a, a short book, about 150 to 170 pages. Each chapter is a standalone chapter, so you can just pick it up and read those chapters. But um, my background kind of led to this book. I remember, uh, for example, I didn't understand that Paul, who was a, I knew he was a persecutor of the church, but I didn't realize he wrote books of the New Testament mm-hmm. until I was in college. Really? So I was like, I, I still know that feeling and how, um, how important it was to realize, oh, wow, I, I'm really paying attention to his words now because this guy used to persecute the church and he's writing for the church now. What happened to him? And so going through school, those were some of the questions I had. Obviously, the resurrection was a I, was one of the big questions uh, that I had, and there's a story to how I met Habermas through hockey, and um, but as we studied the resurrection, I started just seeing all these areas of reliability for the New Testament, and they're often just so spread apart here and there, or sometimes just the academics talk about them, and I'm like, man, these just need to be synthesized, put together, made readable, so someone can pick up and and just read and go, oh, this this is this is an argument for the reliability of the New Testament? This is good. Okay. They're dated early? Oh, that's good, too. They're all before the end of the first century? Wow. Okay. And that's what skeptics grant, too? It's a mini, it's not quite a minimal facts approach to the reliability of the New Testament, but it kind of is. So we have multiple lines of evidence there, and you'll see throughout, there's skeptics, there's believers, all sorts making comments in support of these. 
Now, we probably won't get to all 13 today. When the book comes out, we'll have you on again to go through some of them. But before we get into some of the 13, Mm -hmm. you have been working probably as hard on Gary Habermas's magnum opus as he has. Yeah. Uh, you're on volume three of how many? Four. There's going to be volumes four. total. Just give us an overview of what each volume contains. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, And it's funny because we've been working, and we'd go to Habermas's house, and we'd be working on it together and trying to do some of the edits, and then his wife would chime in in the background and be like, you two got to get it worked out. <laughs> Try to stay focused. Um, but volume one is coming out in January. Uh, January 15th, it's available on pre-order now, 1,072 pages, huge, and it's just on the evidences, historical method, the evidences, and it's full of all the multiple lines of evidence for each of his minimal facts and additional facts, and that's going to be just volume one. Okay, before our listeners, what are the minimal facts that Gary says most scholars agree with. Yes, and he'll have two sets of this. The minimal facts are going to be Jesus' death, the appearances, it's proclaimed early, it's um, uh, the conversion of James, Jesus' skeptical brother, the conversion of Paul. So you got five of them. Five of them. I may be missing one because right. my memory's not so tight because we're on volume three now. <laughs> okay. Once I... we turn that, we actually turned in volume one at the start of SES a year and a half ago. All right. Um, and we've done a whole another thousand pages on volume two since then. Um, and then there's a set of additional facts after those five. And I'm the, the is sixth the, one is, is the just empty escaping. tomb one of them? That, that's in the additional facts. The additional and there's fact. about 20 arguments or so for the empty tomb that he discusses. Okay. A lot of them. Um, and then we also have uh, the centrality of the resurrection. It started in Jerusalem. Um, the church began and grew. The transformation of the disciples, that, that was the sixth minimal fact, by the way. The transformation of the disciples such that they were willing to suffer and die. So you got Jesus' death, number one. Yes. You got the appearances of him resurrecting, number mm-hmm. two. Number three is... The transformation. The transformation of the apostles, yes. or that they were followers of Yahweh, and mm-hmm. suddenly now they're believing a man claimed to be God and rose from the dead. You got the conversion of James and the conversion of Paul? Yes, those are the, the six. All right, I'm missing one. Which one did yeah, I six. miss? Uh, Jesus' death? Yep. Appearances? Appearances. Uh Oh, it's proclaimed early. Proclaimed early. Proclaimed That's early. the one we missed. Proclaimed okay, early. all right. So those six, yep. more than 90% of scholars, whether they're atheists or Christians, agree with. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. No, it's, it's a given. It's, all uh, right. And they're well attested, so well attested. All right. And then volume two of the magnum opus, yes. what's in that? If you had any doubts on the first part, <laughs> the second part deal, deals with all the alter- alternative theories, okay. including David Hume's arguments, miracles, questions of that nature. Then he goes into all sorts of alternative theories, and that's going to be about a thousand pages on that. And what's interesting, too, is he doesn't just give his responses to some of these alternative theories, but he also gives the history of them. So in the 18th century, you had liberals, li- German liberals giving their, that's what they called themselves too. Uh, they gave these alternative theories, but if you didn't give the same alternative theory as someone else, well, they're going to critique your alternative theory. So you have these two guys, one guy may give swoon, one guy may give hallucination theory, and they attack each other and they show the holes in their theories. So Habermas gives that history and it's called, I think the, t- uh, the chapter titles are liberals versus liberals and then conservatives versus liberals. All right. So a pretty cool history and development, which leads to where we are now, which is why a lot of scholars don't take a uh, naturalistic theory these days. We're starting to see them pull back on that and just say, I don't really know what to say happened. So the evidence 
is such that they agree with these six facts, mm -hmm. but how to interpret why these six facts are facts, they punt. Right. Because the naturalistic theories fail to account for all of those facts. Right. There's problems with each of them. Okay. So when we have this bedrock and you put forward an alternative theory, uh, they're challenged by that, that historical bedrock. And it's fascinating because it's just six facts and they're easy ones for us to grasp. I grasp them as a hockey player. So, you know, we can, we can all grab them. And then if you start having those questions, you go, okay, well, it doesn't explain Paul's conversion. Why did Paul, Paul wouldn't have converted? He's not, he wouldn't have hallucinated like these guys did. He's not in that position. Neither would James. James was, James was a skeptic according to Mark and John. Right. And, and then the empty tomb would seem to also tomb, yes. create a problem for the hallucination theory and the fact that it started in Jerusalem, right? I mean, Yes, it's not proclaimed in Greece, right? right it's proclaimed yeah. in Jerusalem where they could check and verify these things as opposed to some distant land. So that's, that's, that's huge, but we kind of take that for granted and overlook its significance. Yeah, it is interesting that these, uh, old te sorry, these New Testament scholars who are not Christians are now avoiding saying what they think happened. They used to say, what, hallucinations? Was that the top one? Yeah, hallucinations is probably one of the, the leading ones. And now it's kind of, I don't know. And maybe if we put two or three bad theories together, maybe we can get one working theory. <laughs> like, oh. What about the third volume? What's the in third the third volume? The third volume is going to be, so Habermas has referenced how he tracks a lot of scholars. This is going to be a, a lot of scholars who he's tracked over the years. And I've worked on this, on portion of this document for the past decade. He's worked on it since 1975. So... I jumped in about a decade ago and added to it, and it is a collection of where scholars are on all these different subjects. So it's not really too much of his thoughts, but it's really highlighting where he, uh, where we put these people in these thoughts. All right, we're going to be right back with Dr. Ben Shaw. We're going to talk about the 13 evidences or reasons to believe the New Testament documents are historically reliable here on I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. This Monday night on our YouTube channel, also our website, crossexamine.org, will be streaming Lesson 11 of Digging Up the Bible. We're looking at the top archaeological discoveries in the Bible. We're about to get into the King's era. We did Joshua and Judges last time. It'll be streamed live on our YouTube channel. It won't be on YouTube very long, so you may want to watch it while it is live. And then next week, we're going to be at the University of Cincinnati on November 2nd. All the details on our website a couple of days later, November 4th. We'll be in Nashville, Tennessee for the Unshaken Conference. That's me, Elisa Childers, and Natasha Crane. Go to unshakenconference.com if you want more on that. We're going to go to four different universities, not universities, churches, next year for Unshaken. Again, if you'd like to bring Unshaken to your church, just go to the unshakenconference.com. I'm talking to Dr. Ben Shaw today, who has his PhD in theology from Liberty University, and he's been working with Dr. Gary Habermas, who is the world champion, heavyweight <laughs> champion of the resurrection. And uh, we were talking just before the break about the four volumes of Gary's magnum opus. We talked about volumes one, two, and three. What's in volume four that hasn't been or hasn't been written yet, or is it being written now? Ben? It is not. It's been written, but not written. All right, uh, all right. Kind of an odd way to say that. But volume one is evidence. Volume two is alternative theories. Volume three is where scholars are at on various different subjects. Volume four is pastoral and practical implications because the resurrection is not just some event that happened, sure. but it has a, it has practical implications for the present. So, volume four is going to be really interesting to see that because you know we want to live that out. 
That's so, right. And Gary has personal experience. Yes, he does. His wife died when she was 43, I think. And uh, he, I remember him talking about how mm-hmm. the resurrection was a comfort to him, knowing that one day they would both be resurrected. Mm-hmm. So that's... Uh, Gary's not just a scholar. He's he's a guy that uh, is a, a real human being who anyone who knows him loves him. He's mm-hmm. just just a wonderful guy. Now um, let's go to your work, Ben. You're about to release in the coming year a book about thirteen. What's the title of the book? Is it 13? trustworthy? Thirteen arguments for the reliability of the New Testament. All right, trustworthy. Yes. Let's go through a few of them. We're not going to get to all of them today, yes. but if you had to talk to somebody about this issue, where mm-hmm. would you start? Well, there's a number of, so obviously there's 13 yeah. at least arguments, um, and a lot of times in reliability books we'll see textual criticism, so we, we do cover that because it's important, uh, but I wanted to make sure to go beyond that, and one of the objections I think that Christians get is they just get the stereotype that New Testament's not reliable, and so historical criteria have come a long way in showing that there's multiple points of convergence in the New Testament that are reliable, and so uh, historical criteria criteria, the best thing about them is they're intuitive. We do them every day, we just don't call them uh, historical criteria in some academic way. Uh, You know, if there's a car accident, we just look, did you see what happened? Did you see what happened? I saw what happened. Oh, you're a witness. Okay, you did too? Oh, now we have multiple independent witnesses. But we don't think like that, but that's what historians do. So when you're doing historical work, you want to find multiple sources. So that's one historical criterion that we can use. But there's others. There's uh, We want early testimony, too. We don't want something from centuries after the fact, right. like we have with Alexander the Great's biographies, for example. Sure. Um, all of Jesus's, uh, uh, not all of them, canonical gospels, that is, they're all within the first century, all within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And so that's that's significant. Um, that's not an insignificant factor. So we have early. We also talk about dating in the book, too, not just of the Gospels, but also of Paul's writings. Um, we want eyewitnesses. That's another one. How about embarrassing testimony? If I'm the one driving and my wife is in the car next to me and she's telling the officer, is my husband who did it, he did it, you know. <laughs> That doesn't look good for me. She's offering up something that's going to, you know, she's embarrassed about what her right. husband had just done, but it's a confession. So uh, that's another criteria. And we see that in the New Testament. The, Jesus's crucifixion was immensely taboo at that time. The, the Gospels actually present the most detailed crucifixion accounts in all of ancient history. So why did they do that? Why would they present something that shouldn't even be in the thoughts of Roman citizens, was what Cicero says. So um, I, I really like historical criteria just because they're so common and we do them every day so we can easily grasp them and then we can apply them to the New Testament ourselves. Let's talk about early first. Mm-hmm. Why do we think the New Testament documents are written early? And when you say early, what do you mean by early? How early is early? Because some people might even say, well, if it's written down 20 years later, that's not early. Mm-hmm. What would you say yeah. to that? Yes. So the first comment would be uh, in Bart Ehrman's book, Did Jesus Exist? He uses a, a century as a time span. So he counts sources within a century of Jesus' death. So 100 years in the ancient world, you know, they don't they don't have computers. Um, this is just making me think. Habermas's big volume on a thousand pages, you know, he types with two fingers. So, uh, you know, we today, we're, we all use 10 of our fingers, we're 80% more efficient. But in the ancient world, they don't, the ability to have paper, to write things, it takes time, it takes money, it takes skills because not everyone can read. So, uh, 20 years, and especially like we just mentioned with um, Alexander the Great, our earliest biographies for him are centuries later. So, and 20, people, people don't really question. No, I, what I, he I did. rarely. Even though he did pretty amazing, he accomplished amazing feats yes. for a man who was in his early 30s. Mm-hmm. 
conquered most of the known world at the time. Exactly. And nobody doubts that those amazing feats were done by him, exactly. even though the biographies were centuries after he yeah. existed. Close to three centuries for the first one. The first one's not the, the best of them. Wow. Plutarch and Arian typically considered to have the better ones. Uh, so that's that's interesting. But what's really cool with the, the New Testament, we have the Gospels all within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. So, uh, you know, we have people writing biographies of World War II decades after, and they can recall vividly because those are vivid things that had happened. They're major events. Um, I can't tell you the color of the car I parked next to because it's, it's a trivial thing, right? right. We can only have um, recall so much, and the things that are important are what stand out to us. So we have the Gospels, but we, we got Paul's writings even earlier. And, and we talk about these dates, but we also talk about creeds in the book. And creeds, there's several, there's dozens of creeds in the New Testament. It's just hard for us to pick up on them at times for a variety of reasons. Explain but, a creed for our audience. Yes, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably one of the most evident creeds because Paul specifically says, I passed on to you that which I received. And so that's technical rabbinical language for passing on tradition. So he's giving them a formal, uh, a formal instruction. Now, when you say tradition, people in America think tradition is almost like, well, it could be true, but it might not be true. It's just a tradition, but you don't mean that, right? No, no. It's a very formalized training. Okay. Uh, so It's more like a catechism, more like yes, a... Yes, uh, much like catechesis. Uh, uh, and well, in, actually, in the New Testament, Romans 10, 9, it uses the word confession. That's another example of these types of um, oral traditions. Oral so, traditions can just be a catch-all. So it's a way of passing off, passing off historical and theological truth yes. to someone who maybe even can't read. Mm -hmm. You can put right. it in a rhythmic way that they could they can understand it. Yes, and they can recall it better. And, right. you know, Habermas uses the, the childhood uh, rhymes that we would learn, like, uh, row, row, row your boat or something right. like that. Jack so, and Joe went up the hill. Yes, exactly, the exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and in a oral culture, you have to have those sorts of things because people need to take it. And if you're trying to make disciples, you have to make sure that they know what's, what's of first importance. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised again, and then he was appeared to many people. So Paul's reminding them that he gave them this tradition. And then we go, well, where did Paul get this tradition? And in Galatians 1, it says just three years after Paul was converted, and a lot of scholars date Paul's conversion to uh, 32, 33 AD. And if Jesus died in 30 AD, okay, we're really close to these events themselves. Paul says, three years later, I went and met with Peter and James, and he didn't just go to meet them. It says hysteresi. So he inquired with them. He sought them out to meet with them to get specific information. And Galatians 1 and 2 is about the gospel. And I just mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, it's about the gospel. It's of first importance. And this is what I gave to you. And you're, by which, if you believe it, you're saved. So this is critical information that, again, virtually all scholars grant that this creedal information, and even Bart Ehrman says that Paul probably received all of his traditions in the early 30s or at that meeting with Peter and James. Why do they suggest it's the early 30s that this creed from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 7, that it comes that early? Why, why do they say it's right after the alleged resurrection and not mm -hmm. a decade or two later? Well, because Paul's meeting with the eyewitnesses. Right. He's meeting... So it's interesting... There's three individuals names in, named in 1 Corinthians 15 as having seen the risen Jesus. And we just mentioned that Paul, three years after his conversion, so again, Jesus died in 30 AD. 32, 33 or so AD, Paul gets converted. Paul says in Galatians 1, three years after my conversion, I went and met with Peter and James. So we have Peter, Paul, and James. 
The creed in 1 Corinthians 15, Peter, Paul, and James are the individuals mentioned as having seen the risen Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's also three groups mentioned in that creed as well. By the way, uh, Titus Kennedy, who's an archaeologist, seems to think that the better date, I know it's disputed, the better date for his crucifixion is 33 AD uh, because it has something to do, and I can't recreate the argument in my head right now, but it has something to do with Janus, who was like second in command to Tiberius, perhaps, mm -hmm. who was executed, and Pilate had kind of a allegiance with Janus, mm -hmm. and he was wondering if Tiberius was going to execute him next. And this happened, I want to say, like 31 AD uh -huh. or 32 AD. So I think Titus Kennedy's point, and others have said this, that it's much more likely this happened in 33 when Pilate would have been absolutely terrified that he was going to experience the same fate mm -hmm. as Janus by Tiberius, because Janus tried mm -hmm. to basically usurp the throne while Tiberius was on vacation or something. <laughs> and so and so when this is if I'm remembering the argument correctly, have you heard this? Does this is this I do know a number of scholars do take 33 right. AD. Paul Barnett is a big one. Yep. Um from down under, right? Yes, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Okay. And then but uh the majority's 30, but there's big names who take 33 AD. Mm -hmm. And um actually Barnett takes a 33 AD and Paul's conversions in 34. Okay. So that's uh, that puts again. It's still three years later. So everything just moves back. Um, it doesn't actually change the timeline too much because it's still just a couple years after the events. And right. again, if Paul's receiving the tradition too, I should note. Um, so say say we take Kennedy's date at thirty three and Barnett's date. Uh, even if that happens and Paul converts in thirty three, it Paul still says three years after my conversion. I'm meeting. So whichever date you take, it's three years after Paul's conversion, okay. which happens just after that. But if Paul, uh, if Peter and James are giving Paul that creed then, they must have had it before then. And that's why guys like Hurtado and Dunn say this creed was developed within weeks or months of the crucifixion. Wasn't Hurtado part of the Jesus Seminar originally? <laughs> I, I don't think he was. I thought I was. read that. Maybe it's wrong because he was a good scholar. Yeah. Uh, I thought I read that just recently. I'm going to have to double check that now. Yeah, he, he died not long ago, but his The Destroyer of the Gods book yes, is a very yes. good book. Larry Hurtado, he's got a website. I think he was a believer. There may have been some decent guys on the Jesus <laughs> seminar, but I just maybe that was I was mistaken or I read something. I read it, and maybe they were mistaken. Anyway, we're talking to Dr. Ben Shaw here. We're going through some of the evidence that the New Testament documents are historically reliable. He has a book coming out next year about 13 of these evidences. We're just talking about one of them right now. Is it early? And we'll pick up our conversation right after the break. Also, we're talking about Galatians here. We're starting a course in Galatians this week that you want to be a part of. If you go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, you'll see the Galatians course. I'll be your instructor. If you take the premium version, we're together for at least six Q&A sessions back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. If you're low on the FM dial looking for a national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. You're never going to hear the evidence that the New Testament documents are reliable on NPR. That's for sure. <laughs> but we're here to tell you the truth. And our guest today is Dr. Ben Shaw theology degree from Liberty University, who has for uh, quite a while been working with the great Dr. Gary Habermas, and we're talking about some of the arguments for the uh, reliability of the New Testament documents. 
Ben, uh, a lot of people will say, well, even if the documents were written, you know, 20, 30 years later, that seems too long. But what is that? What are they not getting when they say that, that there are sources that are earlier? Can you unpack that for us? Yes. Yeah, so, so we talked about creeds. Um, one of the other components uh, that are important are if we look at, say, Papias, who was writing, or who's, we have reports from him uh, from the first century, right around the end of the first century. He says that Mark was Peter's interpreter, mm-hmm. and he was the one who wrote down uh, Peter's gospel. So, Although the writings... Peter's gospel, which is called oh, sorry. Mark. Peter's, yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. right. Not yeah. the gospel of Peter. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. different yeah. thing entirely, yes. Yeah. Um, so Mark's, Mark's gospel is... Mark was Peter's interpreter. And this is widely agreed upon, um, actually, by a number of scholars that say, yeah, Mark was the one who, who uh, had Peter as a source for his gospel. And so although Mark is generally considered to have written around 65 or so AD, maybe a little earlier, uh, his source is Peter. He's right there at the events. He's an eyewitness. So he was there. And Peter, Peter's not just giving the gospel one time for Mark to hear. Peter had been giving the gospel message over and over and over for those uh, several years after the crucifixion until he was ultimately martyred. And so Mark, that was his source. I mean, what better source can yeah, you right. look for than, than Peter, who was you know, one of the top three disciples? So that's, that's one of the, the great testimonies we have there. And then Peter, simil- uh, Paul, similarly, like uh, we mentioned with the creeds, he interviews Peter because he's like, man, I want to know, I want to know about Jesus from you know, I'd been persecuting. What? Where was I wrong? What? What was I getting wrong? Uh, you know, I already been baptized, and I, I uh, spent some time with Ananias. But I, I want to talk to Peter because he was there. And so even Paul's doing the same thing. So it's important to have those. We have these the writings, but we have the sources that bring them back even earlier to the events themselves. What are the, what are the criteria that these scholars use to date the Gospels? Like you just said, Mark sixty five A.D. I. I People I talk to, or people I've read, uh, people like Colin Hemmer, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History, he makes a really strong case that Acts is written by 62, mm-hmm. which means Luke is prior to Acts, and most people believe Mark is prior to Luke. So mm-hmm. how do you get 65 AD for Mark mm-hmm. when Luke is that early? Right. That's a great question. So here I'm going to let my uh, Habermas influence show. I take a minimal fact kind of approach and I take the general dating. So when I do those the 65 date, that's just kind of a general view that that uh, scholars will get. Where do they get that number from? Well here's that the reason I say that is to say Jonathan Bernier, he just wrote a book called Redating the New Testament. Oh that sounds like Bishop John Robinson from like fifty years ago. It's it's you could think of it as a sequel to his book. All right. He dates everything to pre seventy. Just about everything, I should say. So and the fall of the temple is one of those big reasons because some scholars say, Oh, well sure uh, they would for sure mention that. And but historically that's also an argument from silence. So how do we weigh those two positions together? Because guys like Keener date acts to post seventy as well. And Keener, as we know, he's 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 a brilliant scholar. Sure. So, so, you know, how do we weigh those arguments, especially with the destruction of the temple? But Bernier takes Robinson's view, and at the end of his book, he makes a really interesting comment. He says, Robinson and I are the only two guys to write a full-length treatment on the dating of the Gospels and the arguments for them. Like, how do we actually get to these dates? And we, all, we both date them earlier. And if you think we're wrong, write a full-length book and show us why we're wrong. Wow. And you're like, oh. 
Okay. Which book right. is this now? Uh, I believe it's called Redating the New Testament. Robinson's book has a very similar name too. Yeah. So you'll be right. You'll be right in line with both. And as I understand it, Bishop John Robinson. Don't be put off by the word bishop. I think he was liberal. Wasn't he? I believe so too. Yes. Like he wasn't, he wasn't an evangelical. Right. But he's saying, look, the evidence says these documents are early. Mm-hmm. And Dan Wallace, who, as you know, teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary, I asked him many years ago, "What do you think about John? When was John written?" Because when you read John five, mm-hmm. it talks about the Pool of Bethesda, as if it's still there. Mm-hmm. When if he was writing after seventy A.D., it wouldn't still be there, right. and. And Dan said he studied that for a long time, and back in the 90s, and he came to the conclusion that John is written prior to 70 AD too. I think Bernier takes that position as well. Okay. So, so I, it's not just an argument from silence. Right. It's, it's an argument from them positively stating, or at least yes, implying. Yes, because there's, there's that element. And then, too, and the argument of silence, it... it it's nuanced because would we expect the writers to mention these things? Right. Because I take a similar view with Clement because he's typically dated to 95, right. but he speaks of the temple as though there's still sacrifices going on. Oh, yeah? So that's kind of interesting. So, so maybe s- he's writing earlier? So, so okay. 65 is the alternative date given for Clement. Okay. So and that pushes him Clement way of Rome? Clement of Rome, yep. And he wrote his letter to the Corinthians. Okay. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians as well. So um, Clement goes over some early church fathers in addition to... Uh, the New Testament itself, but he also dates um, John pre-70 as well, if I recall correctly. So he's, it's really interesting. So yet the only two full-length treatments put everything pre-70. Yeah, I, I once asked Gary that question, Gary Habermas. I asked him, you know, why do they date it at 65? And he goes, I don't know, they just do. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> That's why they I just said, pull <laughs> stuff out of the air. Yeah, let's he's, call it 65. He's so, he's so eclectic. He's just like, okay, where can we do, give me, get, where can we just agree on to move on so we can uh-huh. get the discussion going? 65? Okay, so how do we move But even that? if it is yeah. 65, if you've got data in it from earlier, it'd be right. like today if I wanted to write a history of the Vietnam War, which occurred in the, you know, 60s and 70s. Even though I'm writing it in 2023, mm-hmm. if I have eyewitnesses that have informed me as to what happened, then I'm back to the events itself You're by their experience. Yeah. You're like a modern yeah, day loop. Right, yeah. right. And so those people would be telling me the truth, mm-hmm. even though I'm writing it 50 years after the event. Mm-hmm. So to, to believe that just because it's written later that you can't trust it doesn't make any sense at all. And mm-hmm. the way historians look at these things, uh, Ben... 50 years is nothing. Is not that in the right? ancient world. Not yeah. in the ancient world at all. Right? Okay. And again, Ehrman, puts, he puts a century, you know, anything within a century is good for Jesus's, not only his existence, because he's got that book, Did Jesus Exist? But I think he gives uh, 12 or a dozen sources for Jesus's crucifixion, and they're within okay. a century. So in so, some scholars may be more flexible. They may take 150 years. If you're dealing with Alexander, you have to be more flexible. You don't have a choice, right? Because his biographies are much later. What is the mistake that people make in the general public when they think, oh, we can't trust these documents because they were written by Christians? You see, they're biased. Uh, yeah. Like, what, what is that mistake? What, uh, what are they missing when they say that? Uh, <laughs> part of me thinks it's just an easy thing to say. Right. Um, but... You know, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to Habermas last last night and uh, just uh, checking on him a little bit and talking to him about how uh, the event's going because he's sick, you know, too. And uh, we were actually talking about that question. And Ehrman says, you know, if you were doing a history on the American Revolution, what kind of sources would you want? Would you discount the American sources because 
they were they won the war. Would you discount George Washington from your source? Mm-hmm. You'd be a terrible historian not to use George Washington in the American Revolution. Right. right. Uh, so that's that's a common everyday example. That's why I like history because we can apply it to non-Christian areas right. and be like, okay. I got, I've got an article called What's Good for the Goose is Good for the Gander. Okay, if we do it over here and we apply it to Christianity, how's that look? It looks pretty good. It looks yeah. really good. So uh, that's that's the biggest one. But at the end of the day, we all have biases. And But there's a great saying, uh, neutrality is not objectivity or objectivity is not neutrality. You can be objective and be biased, right? Like sure. you can say, you can critique your own side while still being on your side. Uh, you can... Of critique the opponents while also being right. Uh, so there's a lot to be said for our subject, our subjective biases. The problem is, and this is this is, uh, uh, I believe his name's, uh, his last name's Evans. He's Sir Evans, and he makes the point: as long as our biases aren't paramount, and that means if I'm, and there's a story in church history of of what that means. Um, there was an Ulrich Zwingli scholar who said. Um, he, he just loved Ulrich Zwingli, and Zwingli had some some controversy around him for committing adultery and whether he had a mistress or not. Really? And, and yes. Was this a guy, one of the guys who was burned at the stake? Am I thinking of that guy? Well, uh, I, I'm not. This is Zwingli's scholar, so this is a oh, story oh. about him. Oh, okay. But the Catholic Church was saying, oh, see, they just want to be a bunch of just no laws and go around and be oh, promiscuous. All right, all right. But, oh, that's just a Catholic bias. Zwingli really was pure and wholesome. And I you see. got a Zwingli scholar now studying Zwingli, like, oh, yeah, he was so pure and wholesome. But he finds a letter of confession of adultery. And what does he do? He he just throws his bias out the window and proclaims Zwingli's guilt. No, he starts to burn his letter. Oh, really? Yeah. And as he's doing it, he knows what he's doing is wrong, and he does ultimately stop doing that. So our biases can be paramount. If he would have let the letter burn, that would have been a paramount where the bias takes over. But he didn't. He chose truth, and that's important too. And we see that in Scripture because we see embarrassing testimony. Right. Jesus' brothers not believing in him is embarrassing testimony. He, his crucifixion, as Paul says, was embarrassing for Jews and Gentiles. There's the women at the, uh, right. at the empty tomb. So there's all sorts of embarrassing testimony, but they include it because it happened. Yeah, it also seems to me that if the bias was going any way at all, it would go in favor of them telling the truth because they had everything to lose mm-hmm. by saying it was true, mm-hmm. right? Um, like, these are these are Jews. Mm-hmm. They're not believing that yes. a man could claim to be God and rise from the dead yes. unless mm-hmm. a man really did claim to be God and rise from the dead because they're going to be beaten, tortured, and killed they for are. saying this. They so are. their bias, maybe I said it the wrong way a minute ago, their bias would be to say this stuff didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But in reality, they say it did, and it hurt them yes, by saying yes. it did. I, yeah. yeah. As Lacona says, liars make poor martyrs. I think Paul Meyer says, liars make poor myth makers. Oh. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, a recent scholar, Andrew Loke, who's got a book on the resurrection, he adds the right, the right element. They were not only risking their bodily injury, but their souls as well, because because they're blaspheming. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 12 to 19. You know, we're, we're lying about God. If he didn't, that's risen right. If he didn't dead, raise yeah. from the dead, okay. And so, but he did raise from the dead. So some things follow from that. Mm-hmm. So that's important. We're talking to Dr. Ben Shaw, who uh, 
has a new apologetics ministry called coreapologetics.com, right? Is that yes, C-O-R-E apologetics.com? Yes, sir. That's it. Yeah. All right. And he's been working with Gary Habermas. He has his own book coming out next year on the reliability of the scriptures, particularly the New Testament. And when we say scriptures, we really mean just the New Testament documents. Are they really telling the truth? And we've just talked a little bit about early testimony, a little bit about embarrassing testimony. And we're going to talk a lot more with Ben right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network, 180 stations or so around the country. This is also in podcast. It's called the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. We're back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. By the way, a great place to get an education is Southern Evangelical Seminary. I went there many years ago. The great Jorge Gill's going there right now. Elisa Childers is going there. Uh, Melissa Doherty's going there. Uh, there are people who you know out there who have gone to Southern Evangelical Seminary. S-E-S dot E-D-U. And if you put a forward slash Frank on there, you might be able to get a scholarship. So go to ses.edu to learn a lot more about apologetics, philosophy, and theology for the real world. And you're going to be steadfast in it because they're not budging. They're not going woke, I can tell you that right now. In fact, we're at the Steadfast Conference. Yep. And we're talking to Dr. Ben Shaw from Liberty University. He has a book coming out next year about 13 arguments for the reliability of the New Testament. Ben, let's talk a little bit about uh, embarrassing testimony. We talked mm -hmm. just a little prior to the break. This, for me, is very intuitive and makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. What are some of the most embarrassing details in the New Testament that they never would have invented if they were making this uh, up? Yes. The two, the two that come to mind for me are crucifixion and the women at the tomb. Uh-huh. The, the crucifixion is, as Paul says, it's a stumbling block to the Jews because he who is hanged is cursed by God. Yep, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Yep. Yep. And to the Gentiles, a stumbling block, or a foolishness, because it was a punishment reserved for slaves. It was meant to be shameful. It was meant to be a public display. And Cicero has a bunch of really brilliant comments on it in the sense of it gives you his perspective on what it was like. Uh, for Roman citizens. And he says it's something that shouldn't even be on our minds. And he's, he does a couple cases where a Roman citizen was threatened with crucifixion by the prosecutor, because Cicero was a lawyer, and that was enough for them to throw the case out, because the word shouldn't even be... It's so beneath a Roman citizen. We don't even need to think about such disgusting things. It's beneath us. So it's beneath the Romans and beneath the Jews. That, yes. But these writers who were all Jews with the exception of Luke mm -hmm. say that the Messiah actually is crucified. Right. And and there was no expectation of a crucified Messiah or resurrecting before the final resurrection of the dead at the end of time. And so it was it was embarrassing is we there's i try to think often of what's a good analogy for it, and we don't really have much of an analogy today until we start seeing the world through the ancient roman eyes or the ancient jewish eyes because it was something so far beneath them fortunately paul gives us that nice uh, snapshot of a statement um, to help us go okay both groups saw this as very embarrassing it's tough but they keep proclaiming it right. and and so we also see of course in archaeology um where they put a donkey head on a crucifixion victim, and Alex Amenos worships his god is what's painted That's below. That's in it. Rome. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. And and so you know that gives them an idea of, of what these Christians were doing. That's how just 
ridiculous they thought it was. Um, but the crucifixion wasn't the end of the story. It was the resurrection is what happened. Uh, and so we have that event. But even there, we see women's testimony being the lead, the, the lead on the empty tomb. And so they're the first ones to discover the empty tomb. And if you're making it up, you could easily just leave that part out or put Peter in there first. Or there's, there's a number of things you could have done. They do leave it out in the creed. They leave it out in the creed. You know what's interesting? In a number of creeds, the empty tomb is often left out too in creeds because creeds are supposed to be a concise statement. Uh, James Ware has an excellent article on, on all of this um, as far as what's typically in a creed, what's not. And also why 1 Corinthians 15 is dated to the 30s by virtually everybody. And it doesn't matter who you are on the, on the theological spectrum. Uh, but the women are left out there. And some scholars have said precisely because of, um, because of the embarrassing nature of it. We can just not mention that part. But we don't see the gospel writers, one, omitting it, because that's a more unpacking narrative of what happened. We don't see them omitting it, and we don't see them changing it. Because they could have done either of those two. Right. And they don't do that. Why... And it's not just that they have women there, because in that culture, women, women weren't seen as on the same level uh, regarding their testimony. But again, it wasn't just that they had women there. They had one woman there who was reportedly mul multiply demon-possessed. What a credible witness. Yes. You know? <laughs> uh, so you know, we know in, in courts today, uh, sometimes you know, th their cellmates will be brought to the stand, uh, but if their cellmate, you know, had been said they were possessed multiple times, too, you're going to bring that person to your stand? Okay, why would they do that? You know, they, it's not like she was later then celebrated or something right. to that effect. She's just mentioned because this is a matter of fact, and it's a matter of fact because everyone seemed to know they were the ones that went to the tomb. They were the ones that came back. And what did the disciples do when they told them? They're like, ah, oh, these sound like tales you guys are right, telling us. Right, I don't know right. if they're these, even really true. These emotional women. Yes. Yeah, there's so many other embarrassing details that they wouldn't have made up. They wouldn't have Jesus with Rahab in his genealogy, genealogy yeah. or Tamar, you know, prostitutes, and they wouldn't. He wouldn't be called demon possessed or a madman or a drunkard mm -hmm. or any of these things. Mm -hmm. He certainly wouldn't have his brothers not believe in him or his own. His own yeah. family wants to seize him and take him away in Mark chapter three. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, yeah. it's just there's, it's. Even having one of his own disciples turn his back on him. Yeah. Judas is embarrassing for him. Or Peter saying, I'll never deny yes. you, Lord. And it doesn't and it's not and it's not just of Jesus. Peter is yeah. one of the leaders of the church. So is James. James in the gospels written after he was already leader of the early church. They're like, hey, don't forget, James, he was a skeptic during Jesus' life. Don't forget about that part. They could have, again, left that That's part right. out. That's right. Easily left it out. And then they he's, he's at the crucif he's at the uh, Great Commission, and it says about his disciples. Some believe, but some, some doubted. Happened, yeah. He's standing right in front of them. What, how are they doubting? I mean, this doesn't yeah. make any sense if they're making it up. Let me ask you another. This yeah. is an unusual one I hadn't heard before in Evidence for the Resurrection. You say it has to do with the genre of yes. the Gospels. What do you mean by yes, that? Yes. It's actually the genre of the New Testament. Uh, okay. So the Gospels, and uh, prior to the 80s, there was a lot of debate on what are the Gospels? What kind of, like, what's the nature of the reading? Because if our genre tells us what the reader is expecting from it. So if we go, if we go, watch Chronicles of Narnia, we know we're in for kind of a, a fictional story. If we go watch the news, we know we're in for a fictional story. I'm just kidding. Story. Uh, so yes. we we understand, right? Unless our, it's the Babylon Bee, <laughs> yeah, your best right. source in fake news. You so can trust them. We 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 understand that the genre dictates like our understanding, how we're going to understand and read something. So if we read a history, we're expecting to get factual information, understanding causes and things like that. Well, 
the uh, um, there's a good book called What Are the Gospels by a scholar named Burridge, Richard Burridge, and he set out to argue the Gospels are not biographies. They are not. Well, his research led him to the opposite conclusion. He's like, oh, they are for sure biographies. And within a decade or so, he convinced all of scholarship. And so, um, and then since the 90s or so, scholars have agreed that the Gospels are biographies, which are a subcategory of history. So when you read a biography, that tells us a couple of things. It's not a novel. It's not a romance fiction. It is, they were directing and trying their best to tell the truth. They, in that genre, you were not expected to just make up facts just for the fun of it, to make up some account. Um, there were what, the, Was there even, I've been told, but you're the expert mm-hmm. on this, that this idea of an historical novel is only like 200 years old. Uh, oh, it, there, there yeah. were there were. Uh, I, I just actually uh, reviewed this the other day in Craig Keener's Christobiography book. Which, if you're really interested in looking at how the um, the Gospels are biographies uh-huh. specifically, his book is an excellent read. And there were, you're right. Uh, it's it's more of a recent thing, but uh, there were only a very few number of of those type of fictional histories, uh-huh. and they came later. They 200 years. After the Gospels. Oh, okay. Two hundred years, years after, after the yeah, Gospels. They were typically later, and they were very obvious, and they were there to subvert. Right? They were countercultural measures to biographies, so okay. they kind of were their own biography. Um, if you so kind there, of, there wasn't this kind of idea of a historical novel in the first century. Right, well, they weren't allowed the, for the Gospel writers. Yeah. They were not allowed in that genre. Like, there's not a police, right? They're not like no one's yeah, over yeah, their shoulder yeah, going, yeah. "You can't do this." But if you're writing that genre, you're not expecting to invent. Freely, you're not a, you're not going to do that kind of thing. If you are, you're just going to write a different genre, okay. right? And that's not what the gospel writers. Uh, uh, Luke tells us that in the preface, yeah, that he sought eyewitnesses out. We know Mark was Peter's interpreter, so we know we have guys that were either associated with the apostles or Matthew and John um, as apostles. So right. you have these. Um, Guys who are writing biographies, and then what Burridge does is he breaks down the Gospels and says, "Look, they fit the historical genre of biographies of other ancient Greco-Roman writings." Um, and he makes some really profound arguments in his book as well. Um, for example, he makes a very good Christological argument for Jesus's deity. How many biographies are there of other Jewish rabbis? Oh no, and, and the reason is. If you do a biography, Jesus was the embodiment of the law lived out. He was the one who we are now supposed to live our lives like. If you were to do that with Rabbi Hillel, well, that would be idolatry because I'm supposed to live after Hillel. No, I'm supposed to follow God. But these authors are telling us to follow Jesus. Oh, I see. So that's the argument there, which is a really profound one, um, which needs to be unpacked more by somebody at some point soon. Um, But we also have Paul's writings, which are internal letters to the church. And so he's not trying to propagandize anybody. He's, he's writing to believers who are already on the same page. There's some issues going on in those churches, but they're dealing with them. So Paul's writing an internal memo. You know, we see a lot today on le- uh, memos leaked or this is leaked and this is what they're really saying to each other. We have that with the yeah. New Testament. Yeah, and especially in Galatians when he has to dope slap Peter, you know, <laughs> in Galatians 2. Here's one apostle correcting another apostle. Yes. Well, that's more embarrassing testimony, by the way. Yeah. But yeah, it's you're right. It's internal mm-hmm. and it, there's no propaganda here that he's telling the truth. And why would he write all of these damning facts about these churches that they're yes. they're not following? Yeah. And of course, even the Book of Revelation. 
right? Yes. It's 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 damning. They're damning facts about these folks. Yes, it's a bit encouraging for us today because we're like, okay, there's still hope for us because we saw they had right. problems That's too. Right. So now we've got hope. Well, Ben, there's so much more we could talk about, but we're running out of time. Yes. Tell people your website again, where they can learn more yes. and, and support you. Even we are Core Apologetics, and that's C O R E Apologetics dot com. And you know, we joke we are kind of. Uh, Dr. Habermas is, uh, we're his spiritual baby or ministry baby, uh-huh. and it takes two of us to even do half of what he did. But, <laughs> but we're, right. we're just getting started. Uh, check out our website. Got a lot more coming up on Sounds it. Sounds great. And when the book comes out, we'll have you on. All right. It's great being with Dr. Ben Shaw from Liberty University, coreapologetics.com. We've got a lot coming up uh, in the ensuing weeks. Don't forget University of Cincinnati next week and also uh, the Unshaken Conference in Nashville on November 4th. Hope to see you guys out there. Lord willing, we'll be back next week. God bless.